good evening to everyone. Uh, I hope you are, you are suitably impressed by my very bright blue suit. It's the youngest looking suit I have in my entire rep repertoire. And I challenge anybody over 65 to have anything other than blues and greys. But since the talk today is about old age and young age, um, and this suit was gifted to me by my daughter uh, on her wedding last year, a special gift because she said, if you're gonna walk me down the aisle, can you please not look so old? So in honor of this lecture, which is about demography, um, here I am going to pretend and try very hard uh, to be young and talking about babies on one hand and, um, and old age on the other. This topic on demography and family, I thought originally was going to be a rather tame and a somewhat sedate topic because it deals with, on one hand, um, genteel aging and gentle babies, which I mentioned uh, last time, I'm going to be a very happy grandfather in a month two time from now. But as I researched this topic, I found that in fact, the area, the whole subject is a raging cauldron of very emotional issues because it touches all of us very personally. So I'm gonna deal with two issues at the opposite ends of the life cycle spectrum. One, how to deal with people in retirement and how to encourage young people to have more babies. Really subjects at opposite ends of the spectrum. And to recognize the fact that we're in a new year, uh, those of you who've attended some of my previous lectures will know that I've always tried to choose uh, proverbial elephants in the room, but to celebrate and commemorate the new year, I will be introducing um, not any more elephants, but a bearded ram and a baby goat. And the bearded ram is the one I'm going to start out with first, and that's the issue of retirement adequacy. The government's promise to Singaporeans at independence some 50 years ago was that every hard-working citizen would be able to own a decent home through the HDB and to save enough money through the CPF to fund living expenses throughout retirement. These promises were a critical part of the social compact between citizen and state, and they have largely been met. However, because of increasing life expectancy, the CPF has been increasingly stressed to provide enough cash for retirement. And changes, some of them controversial, have been made to the original terms of the CPF in the past three decades. Further measures which tweak the increasingly complex CPF have just been announced, including increasing contributions from older employees as well as their employers, and raising the salary ceiling. The CPF advisory panel has also made new proposals, and a new silver support scheme, or SSS, has just been launched. These have all clearly helped to strengthen retirement adequacy. Now, there are differing views as to whether they go far enough to actually provide sufficient retirement funding for the lower-income retirees, but such differences of opinion are to be expected. Instead, I don't want to dwell on these more immediate issues which are being debated in Parliament. In fact, when I prepared my, my lecture, I had never even realized it was going to coincide with budget debate and that some of these issues were, in fact, uh, being brought up and being discussed right now even as we speak. So I actually wanted to ask more long-term questions. 
And that is because of the continuing erosion of CPF's ability by itself to provide retirement adequacy, the scheme is on one hand being continually tweaked and on the other is being supplemented by external schemes such as the SSS and further down the road, yet other schemes may be announced. Instead of the CPF retaining its place as the centerpiece and the cornerstone of the Singapore retirement system, current trends may eventually relegate it to being just one component of an increasingly disparate and complicated collection of retirement-related schemes. And the danger is that people will fail to fully understand, much less appreciate, the totality of the many separate schemes now in place and yet to come in the next 50 years, and may be perplexed by the state's role in ensuring retirement adequacy. And should that happen, a creeping cynicism may start to undermine the social contract which the CPF in its simple boldness represented for so many years and for so many Singaporeans. It may be appropriate then, at this critical juncture of Singapore's history, during which this government's budget is, has implicitly embraced a model of co-responsibility for what was previously a self-funded model of retirement savings, to explicitly create an integrated, a united platform for all future schemes to supplement the CPF. I would call this platform, for lack of a better word, let's say CPF Plus. In other words, a big CPF, a CPF Plus, may be simpler and better than many small supplements that come at different times of our history and may be increasingly difficult to understand and are disparate. So on the other hand, the other issue I'll be talking about on the other spectrum, that of making babies, the, the central issue here is whether we are prepared to take the perhaps radical steps which have enabled some developed Western countries to raise their birth rates from near terminal decline to more than replacement levels. Whether such steps which largely involve creating a state-funded parental support ecosystem, whether that is prohibitively expensive or is in fact a vital necessity depends on whether we consider our birth rate to be a strategic imperative of the same order of priority as say national service which when it was first conceived was certainly not cheap and continues to be not cheap but is fully accepted because of its strategic imperative so let me start now by developing the framework for a discussion on CPF plus the optimistic Singapore narrative talks about our young grasping the future in their hands to decide our nation's destiny. But going by our rate of aging, perhaps the real future is one of precipitous decline and a, and a silver-haired or balding nation burdening the younger generation and grappling with its unpreparedness for this rate of aging. We're one of the fastest aging countries in the whole world. Today, only around 10% of Singaporeans 
and 25% of Japanese citizens are 65 years old or more. And we all know already how Japan is supposed to be an old country. 25% of Japan is over 65 years old and only 10% for us. Great. Around 40 years from now, within the time span I'm talking about, we will intersect with Japan with about 35% of both populations having elderly people. And soon thereafter, we will overtake Japan. In other words, in the next 40 to 50 years, our elderly will triple in number from one in 10 to one in three. That rate of aging is unsurpassed anywhere else in the world. So from third world to first world in a single generation, and then from young to old in the next single generation. That has been our fate. And the corollary problem with such rapid aging is that retirement adequacy can only continue to erode as time passes, no matter what happens and no matter what a government can do. The inevitable and inexorable trend is simply that, like chasing someone who is running even faster than you are, life expectancy is extending faster than we can extend reasonably the age of retirement. Every generation is living longer and also retiring later, but the ratio of retirement years to working years is not the same. The ratio is increasing in favor of retirement years so that what we save in our working lives have to be stretched out over a longer period and the net effect is less money to spend every year of your retirement. Now, when the CPF was first created 60 years ago and retirement age was 55 years, life expectancy was around 65 years old. That means that our parents worked during the first 85% of their lives. Of course, I exclude the non-working years when you're still schooling and so on. And their savings financed the remaining 15%. That 85 to 15 ratio is what I call the retirement funding ratio. You work 85% of your overall life expectancy in order to finance a 15%. And you can, you can calculate that very, very easily. 10 years over 65 is 15%. A high uh, retirement funding ratio indicates a high probability of retirement adequacy, simply because there are more working years to build up savings for fewer retirement years. And conversely, a lower ratio means poorer retirement adequacy because fewer working years are available to finance a longer retirement period. So now, let's fast forward to 2015. Life expectancy is now 82 years old. Retirement age has extended from 55 to 62. The retirement funding ratio is now 76 to 24. And this will worsen to 72 to 28, when our children's life expectancy will rise to, say, 92 years old, and they retire at, say, 66 years old. Now, from a work-life balance perspective, this is social progress. Instead of retirement as a short precursor to death, we will now enjoy longer, more active, more meaningful retirement years. For our parents, 15% of their life expectancy could only be enjoyed in retirement. 
And for my generation, it'll be 24% of our lives will be spent in happy retirement, hopefully. For our children, 28%. And so it goes on with approximately three years of increased life expectancy for every decade, perhaps only half of that in terms of retirement age. So gradually, you may end up having 30% of 33% of your whole life being spent in retirement. That would seem to be great, as I said, social progress, more active, happy retirement. There's only one hitch. Who's going to pay for all these golden years? An enjoyable second career may be possible for professionals and other white-collar workers, but for the bulk of the working class, post-retirement employment is usually part-time or at a lower wage and is usually no less stressful than the first career. And exacerbating this is the cost of retirement rising faster than income from salaries. So if the retirement funding ratio is not to worsen from 85-15 to 76-24 and then 70-30 and so on, people of my generation will have to work, stop working only at 70 years old. My children will have to retire at 78 years old if you're going to keep to that same 85-15 funding ratio. Now, this may be physically possible, and some may well choose to do so, but obviously, many people will have to sacrifice an in the enjoyment of retirement or doing voluntary service at that time. Now, in a collective social security system, the state pays for all these bonus years. And that's why in Western developed countries, there's a concern that current generations have to fund future generations, hip operations, physiotherapy exercises, and so on. But because Social Security is collectivized, no single or individual pensioner is having anxiety attacks that his own state-funded pension will run out. However, in a self-funded compulsory savings system, which I call self-funded because the employer's contribution to CPF I consider as part of the total compensation that a company has to give and otherwise it would have been compensation to the individual, the anxiety is much higher because you have only what you personally saved up to tide you into retirement. It's not a collectivized social security system. And whilst this is good for the state and avoids intergenerational funding pressures, it puts the pressure squarely on the individual Singaporean. Now, government's approach to this problem is to ring fence the truly exorbitant post-retirement expenses from a person's retirement needs so that the monthly CPF payouts can be quite small. And so, medical care for the most needy is heavily subsidized through Medifund. The elderly have their own special Pioneer Generation Package, or PGP, and MediShield Life provides universal hospitalization insurance. And another potential drain on retirement adequacy, which is the cost of housing, which can be painful for low-income retirees who do not have their own homes, has also been resolved because in Singapore, generally, you have universal home ownership financed by your CPF accounts. So that's taking care of two major problems of retirement adequacy. But that still leaves the non-medical, non-housing costs of retirement spending. And so the fundamental dilemma 
of a worsening retirement funding ratio is simply that retirement adequacy will inevitably worsen over time. And furthermore, people's expectations of what basket of goods or services should constitute a minimally acceptable retirement lifestyle will only increase over time as we become more developed and affluent. One argument has been that if people were willing to monetize their houses by selling and then downgrading or do reverse mortgages with HDB, a lot of cash would be released for them to spend in retirement. The problem is that this option has not been popular at all in Singapore and most people somehow seem to still believe that home ownership is an essential part of their retirement security. The anxiety of Singaporeans as they approach what should be the happiest period in their lives, an active, enjoyable retirement as a reward for all their hardworking years, that will not lessen but will instead increase unless there is an explicit assurance that a fundamental change will be made to the current CPF model. And mind you, at 2,042.4 hours of work time a year, 2,400.2, Singaporeans work longer than anybody else in the world. That was an interesting statistic that you should all try to remember. And that goes to show that I do have a very hardworking research assistant. Now, 50 years ago, the social contract our pioneer leaders made with the people of Singapore through the dual CPF and HDB promise was instantly audacious, compelling, and risky in its promise. But people rallied to its simplicity, and the PAP's ability to deliver on this promise underpinned to a great extent its continuing success at the polls. Today, however, the original CPF vision has been tweaked almost beyond recognition and is unable to provide by itself, I stress by itself, retirement adequacy for Singaporeans. Government has responded with very laudable and socially beneficial schemes outside the CPF system. But the social compact which CPF represented in its simplicity is at risk of being frayed because the uncertainties about retirement, retirement adequacy are being addressed by separately conceptualized and executed schemes. To erase anxieties and restore the CPF to its cornerstone of our retirement system is a bold, simple, and audacious commitment now needed for the next 50 years. Should the state simply guarantee all Singaporeans that it will top up the accounts of those CPF members plus citizens without CPF savings to whatever levels are periodically deemed necessary by a competent authority for a minimally reasonable level of retirement livelihood. I note here that the commitment should not be limited to just a survival level of retirement livelihood but a reasonable level as determined by a periodic
periodic and impartial assessment, such as an advisory panel, because what constitutes reasonableness will change as we mature into an increasingly developed and affluent society. This unequivocal commitment with all schemes to be encompassed within the single CPF platform is what I call CPF Plus. If, for example, a competent authority such as the CPF Advisory Panel were to determine that the minimum monthly sum required for a basic but dignified retirement lifestyle for any particular period of, say, three to four years is, let's say, $1,000 a month, then the difference between that and what the minimum sum or the basic retirement sum, as they're being called, can provide will come in the form of direct cash injections to a person's CPF account to top up that difference. Now, the silver support scheme is similar in concept, but it is an independent scheme. And I think until more, more details about the financing and administrative details are reviewed, it's hard for me to comment further on that scheme. But I think a scheme such as a CPF Plus in its broad and encompassing commitment can be funded from the net investment income of our national reserves. As you all know by now by reading in the papers and the budget debate, this is a relatively obscure terminology that has now come out more into the public eye. And the net surplus generated by investing our reserves after deducting for liabilities such as payment to CPF account holders, this is what is called the net investment returns. The Constitution was amended in 2008 to allow up to half of NIR to be utilized by government for current spending. And that's how schemes such as the Silver Support Scheme, the PGP, that's how they've all been funded. To be cautious and not to have an open-ended commitment, which it might regret later, the commitment for CPF Plus could be capped at a certain percentage of NIR, such as 5 to 10 percent, or whatever is prudent, as well as likely to be sufficient. But at least it is making a firm commitment that is there and ready for people to understand what it means. And if committing a maximum percentage of NIR to, CP, to CPF Plus is considered too radical, then another option is to simply set up an endowment fund which is only a one-off commitment and allows increases to the fund for future governments to decide. In this case, only the investment returns from the endowment fund will be utilized for CPF Plus. This is how ManyFund is structured, and it's grown from 200 million in 1993 to about $3 billion now. And to put some figures in perspective, the current silver support scheme is going to cost about $350 million a year, and if we establish an endowment fund and it manages to generate, say, a 4% profit in order to get $350 million a year, then you would need a starting endowment of about roughly $9 billion to begin with. I think if we proceed along these lines, several basic principles should be adhered to. First, any such payments should be paid into the CPF accounts of only the Singaporeans whose retirement savings will not be adequate to fund their retirement needs, as determined periodic periodically by a competent authority. In other words, there should be a means test for reasons of social equity. This, of course, also assumes that the CPF will revert to its original role as a savings fund so that people cannot intentionally draw down or overspend their CPF savings 
for housing or investments just in order to be topped up by CPF+. Second, it should take into account the fact that non-working Singaporeans do not even have CPF accounts, but still need retirement savings. And this can be a good opportunity to reform the present CPF for workers only system so that husbands can pay part of their CPF into their wives' accounts if they're homemakers or caregivers. Or to even go one step further, homemakers or caregivers can be given an allowance from the state which goes into their CPF. One of the biggest irritations of people who do national income accounting is that if you are a homemaker and you work your ass off, you don't actually contribute to the economy, but if you hire a maid, that maid actually contributes to the economy. And that is one anomaly that I think every working um, mother at home realizes that they're not actually getting paid for anything, but they're generating the same amount of work. And our CPF system also does not recognize this. Thirdly, CPF Plus can be tweaked to reward those who are willing to save more or willing to withdraw later than the minimum required by CPF regulations. It can even be used to reward special deserving groups of people, such as national servicemen. Explicitly committing to a CPF plus co-responsibility model for retirement payment removes the anxiety from Singaporeans that occasional measures to help them may still not be enough to bridge future retirement funding gaps. Furthermore, it also provides flexibility for government because the cap on the NIR percentage to be used for CPF plus or the increase to the endowment fund, if it is set up as such, can be determined from time to time and therefore can be kept within the limits of sustainable and realistic long-term investment returns from the reserves. And of course, by doing so, we will minimize the likelihood of unfunded pension liabilities, which currently is haunting the pension system of the, of the developed world. Now, there might be two objections to CPF Plus, and we're really beginning to hear them from Parliament, from people saying, are you not spending too much? What are the objections? First, to guarantee a supplemental source of funding for a person's CPF account may erode the work ethic. It'll de-incentivize savings. And secondly, drawing upon the reserves, even if only the NIR, may slide us even further down the slippery slope of raiding the reserves, which started already with the constitutional amendment to allow half the NIR to be used as current expenditure. Now, I think there's several sound counter-arguments to these objections. To top up a person's CPF account just prior to retirement, whatever that is determined to be, does not equate to giving money to a person during his working years. Rewarding sections of the population through CPF Plus does not erode the work ethic, nor create an entitlement mentality of handouts because of its deferred impact. It can even be argued that such a scheme can help to inculcate a culture of deferred gratification. The fact is that CPF Plus is in line with the values of governance in Singapore, which starting with the ideological origins of the PAP 
have always been more aligned towards social democracy than laissez-faire or market capitalism, and Singaporeans are better off for it. Medifund, Workfare Income Supplement Scheme, or the Pioneer Generation Package have not eroded the work ethic, as many conservatives from the developed world, whether it be in the US or the UK, would well argue. They have rewarded, they have brought comfort to sections of the population. And as we're drawing upon the net investment returns of NIR, or the reserves, to fund CPF Plus, we need to recognize that not only is the NIR already being tapped for various purposes, but that this is not transferring the burden of funding CPF Plus to future generations, which would be the case with most tax-based collective social safety nets. Indeed, this whole issue may prompt a much-needed and separate discussion on the reserves itself, that final sacred cow. The fact that government amended the Constitution to allow half the NIR to be allocated for current expenditure implies a recognition that the growth of our reserves is approaching a point of sufficiency for whatever unforeseen contingencies may arise. It can be argued that after this point is reached, whatever size of, res of reserves it might imply, NIR should belong to the current and not future generations. And failure to return at least a pretty large chunk of such returns to finance a current generation's welfare is in fact intergenerationally inequitable. The case can even be made further if one wants to, that as more pioneer Singaporeans who contributed to our reserves, because it's the pioneer Singaporeans who worked so hard to create the reserves that we enjoy today, as they die out and as we multiply less with our dismal birth rate, our reserves per capita increases actually at an exponential rate. And thus, if anything, the government should consider being even more generous with its funding. And you could well argue that case. In any case, I think how much more of NIR can be utilized, then saved, for whatever purposes and when, should become a part of the national conversation. And in fact, the genie has been let out of the bottle once a constitutional amendment was made to allow 50% of NIR to be utilized. Why 50? Why not 55? Why not 60? Why not 70? This debate needs to occur among Singaporeans because this is the source, both on one hand, of our for our conservative retention of our safety net, but at the same time, it is a source for spending for a generation of people that perhaps deserve to have proper retirement adequacy. After having dealt with retirement adequacy and old age, let me target the younger people in the room, all those who are capable but are not producing babies. This is targeted towards all of you. The previous one was targeted to all the, the white-haired people in the room, the retirees, and, and so on. Now this is targeted right at the younger people. So I'm talking about unborn children. And this issue is whether we as a society are willing to do what it seems to be required to bring birth rates back to and even exceed replacement levels. 
Contrary to what we used to think, all of us used to think in the world some 10 to 15 years ago, this can and has been done. But the costs are not negligible. Ever since the 1960s, when the government launched a population control program, our TFR, or total fertility rate, has been continually declining. We are good Singaporeans. You tell us to produce one, we produce one. But when you tell them to produce three, we don't go back to produce three. So for three decades, our TFR has been below the replacement rate of 2.1 births per woman. And since 2003, a dozen years ago, it has even been less than 1.3 births per woman. We're actually hovering at the edge of the precipice, the so-called low fertility rate, which is when a confluence of demographic, sociological, and economic trends all converge and create a self-reinforcing, unstoppable spiral downwards. Now, last year, there was a slight uptick, and that's quite encouraging in our TFR, but it's hardly a trend yet. A few years ago, our population already started to shrink. And although it's not been that noticeable because of in-migration, new citizens, and more permanent residents, but arresting the trend of a declining and shrinking population will not be easy. One IPS study has found that even with an increased TFR to, say, 1.8 births per woman, which is actually quite optimistic because it's already 50% higher than at present, the resident population of Singapore will still start to decline not now, but in the next 15 to 20 years. We would need to take in about 20,000 new citizens a year on a net basis, meaning it has to be actually more than that in reality to offset for out-migration, to stem this decline and to achieve simple zero population growth. Now, 20,000 new migrants every year on a net basis is about the size of Marine Parade. It's not small. And with the growing anti-immigration sentiments, if not growing, but at least persisting, it's questionable whether in-migration can fill the population gap. So is the demographic future of Singapore as dismal as the, as the statistics seem to suggest? Should we be quite defeatist and follow the route of uh, Japan and plan for a future of robots taking the place of children to help older people? I don't think so. If you look, surprisingly, at trends in the Western world, birth rates in developed countries have somehow bottomed out in the last few years, and they're starting to increase again. Demographers have discovered that when the Human Development Index, or HDI, increases, fertility rates decline but they reach a level where they become a J-curve again, and they start to rise. The HDI is a more holistic measure of development beyond simply economic wealth, which I think in one of my uh, lectures, uh, the second one, I talked about saying that Singapore should adopt a similar human development index. Now, this negative correlation between rising HDI and falling birth rates has been observed now for almost a few decades and was once thought to be inevitable. As people's livelihoods increased, birth rates would fall. It's something that every country has seen. As lifestyles improve, people want fewer children. 
But a study first published in the magazine Nature in 2009 found that at some point as the HDI continues to advance, that means as standards of living improve even further, people don't produce less children. Fertility rates start to climb back up again. Some Western developed countries such as France, Sweden, Norway, have actually seen fertility rates climbing back to replacement levels of 2.1 after decades of continuing decline. In the US, fertility improved above replacement level for a little while and has now hovered around there. New Zealand's TFR is now at replacement level. Now, what has caused this reversal in birth rates and more importantly, how can it be sustained? The prevailing theory is that this considerable and apparently sustained uptick in fertility rates is due to changing notions of gender roles within the family, work-life balance within careers, and government policies which support the ability of families to enjoy the natural happiness of raising children. Studies in Europe have shown that before 1985, as more women went to work, couples have fewer children. Singapore's history corroborates this trend. But after 1985 in Europe, the correlation reversed. Countries where more women worked started to gradually have higher birth rates than those where more women stayed home. This would be almost counterintuitive. But this has noticeably not happened in Singapore, where as more women went to work, birth rates continue to go down. It's not happened in other East Asian countries, like Hong Kong and Taiwan. All of East Asia seems to be going on a trend very different from that of Western Europe. Why is that so? Sociologists say that the data suggests that countries which recognize through concrete policies that young families today only want more children if both parents undertake equal responsibility for child rearing and that children are well taken care of while both parents continue to engage in their careers will get a positive response from young parents. In other words, there is no need for campaigns to encourage people to have at least one and preferably two children or to bribe them with cash to make more babies. A two-child or more family is a natural desire of all parents. But they're not procreating because the overall support environment is not conducive. Create a truly conducive environment and leave the rest to nature. And that is what has been done in the West. In fact, there is a, a phenomenon in, in the behavioral sciences called motivation crowding theory, which when applied would mean that trying to use money to motivate what should be an intrinsic desire, and that of having children, can have the perverse effect of reversing the desired result instead. So creating a suitable environment which cannot be as monetized as easy just giving out cash is much better than direct cash handouts for bearing children. What might such an environment entail for us in Singapore? Truly, I have said before, such truly pro-family policies will not come cheap. Sweden grants each new parent 
two months of paid leave, which cannot be transferred between each other, and another full year, 360 days, which can be shared or transferred between themselves. Parents on leave are paid 80% of their monthly salary for 80% of the total leave allowable, with a cap, which is, only, which is roughly about 6,500 Singapore dollars. The balance 20% allowable is paid at a lower flat rate. So you can imagine the state subsidizes this as much as the state subsidizes all reservists who go back to do their reservist, the state pays. Now this seems to have worked. Sweden's previously declining fertility rates have almost returned to replacement levels and further refinements are likely to spur even higher growth. One refinement is an interesting example of how family dynamics operate and how the state can actually nudge behavior. Data showed that Swedish mothers used up on average 75% of their total leave entitlement, but fathers only used up, guess, 25%. And these fathers pressured their wives to take up all of the remaining one year, which was allocated for both. A Swedish woman had a hue and cry and said, we're not going to make babies if that's going to be the way the state rewards us. And so the government has reduced the shared leave and given more to the father so that the pressure will be on the father to use it or lose it. So the state essentially helped mothers to nudge fathers to do their share of parenting. And that was a very key factor in convincing women to have more children. And so Swedish birth rates went back up again. So for all the guys out there, the young guys out there, you know what the moral of the story is. You're not having more kids because you're not helping your wives take care of the responsibility of having more kids. That's only part of the story. High quality and inexpensive childcare facilities are also important. And Sweden again leads in the provision of such services, even to the extent of having overnight childcare centers for children of single parents who have to do shift work. And Sweden is just one example. Many other European countries are doing the same thing by having childcare facilities at, within walking distance of everyone's home, or good childcare facilities and medical facilities at workplaces and so on. So the takeaway for Singapore is that if we want the same birth rates as in Europe, we should work harder to promote work-life integration and gender equality within the family so that for women there is no trade-off between having a meaningful career and enjoying motherhood. Our government is well aware of the success of these European countries because their experts have visited Singapore and shared their experiences. But there is either a skepticism about the impact of long parental leave on fertility rates or an unwillingness to confront the economic costs of such programs. And certainly, employers who are already reeling under the current clampdown on foreign workers will be extremely unhappy about having to give a lot more paid leave to their child-rearing employees. But as our fertility rates continue to plunge while Europe starts to see a reversal, it does behoove us to perhaps consider whether the strategic dangers of not stemming a population decline may actually outweigh the economic costs. We need to decisively conclude whether we are facing an issue of demographic security requiring the same kind of mindset shift which enabled national service to be implemented, despite the loss of economic productivity as well as the costs.
to the state. Furthermore, we may have to change the entire support system for the young family beyond just increasing paternity and maternity leave. An entire ecosystem of SMEs have to be created to undertake more of the work done by working parents. And liberalizing the employment of domestic helpers will not necessarily help. And there's even some evidence to suggest that it may be counterproductive. Young families with domestic live-in maids have found themselves on one hand increasingly dependent on them to relieve their stress, but without increasing the intimacy of family life to encourage them to have more children. We need a network of SMEs to which much housework, family meal preparation, and many other household chores can be outsourced. Reliable childcare facilities need to be more widespread near the office and so on. And this also creates an opportunity for an entire set of new SMEs to populate our economic landscape and give job opportunities for all our young entrepreneurs. In fact, for those who think that this kind of expenditure is, is overdone, there's been a recent MIT study to show that every dollar spent on early child care and early child education actually saves $13 in total cost to the state later on in the development of that person. And so facilities and services serving the dependents of young working families, both the grandparents and the infants, will go a long way to encourage Singapore families to enjoy having children rather than being stressed by them. But unless we recognize that our current policies are not working, and we learn from other countries which have indeed achieved success, we will simply go into genteel decline and will bemoan our fate while not doing much about it, or finally trying to do something when it's too late. Now, before I, I wrap up, I just want to say a few words on the notion of the family. Now, while it may be an exaggeration to say that the traditional family is under assault in the West by new trends such as single parenthood, same-sex marriages with adopted children, unmarried parents, and short-lived marriages, and so on, Clearly, alternatives to the traditional nuclear family are certainly growing. For many years, the Singapore policy of being pro-family meant active discouragement of whatever lifestyles were considered not pro-family, to the extent that single parents or unmarried singles found it difficult to access state-funded benefits such as public housing. Insofar as the goal of an inclusive society to which we are committed means that all Singaporeans are equally entitled to state protection and assistance. We do need to be more tolerant towards other alternative family norms while not undermining the traditional fundamental nuclear family model. Now, in conclusion, the demographic shape of Singapore is changing very rapidly and our children will inherit May not, what they may inherit may not even be recognizable to us today. The twin challenges of providing retirement adequacy and encouraging a replacement birth rate will require paradigm shifts in our thinking. And inevitably, there will be trade-offs for no solution is ever completely cost-free. And the discussion of these trade-offs need to be had openly and as soon as possible. 
We need to debate new ideas and assume that everything is doable unless otherwise proven, rather than immediately reject anything new as not doable unless proven otherwise. I have found in my own experience that in holding brainstorming sessions with, with colleagues, putting the burden of proof on the naysayers is a good way to encourage the flow of ideas, which means everything is doable unless proven otherwise, rather than everything is not doable unless you prove it can be done. I hope so far with only one last debate, one last lecture, uh, to do. I hope that perhaps I've contributed to this debate through some of these suggestions. By no means are they the best ideas or even necessarily doable. But I do hope that more suggestions will be forthcoming and our leaders in the policy formulation corridors of ministries or parliament will not dismiss ideas from me, from you, from anyone else out of hand as uninformed or irresponsible because an active citizenry is about embarking on a process of inquiry to assess what works for the future of Singaporeans. I think it behooves all of us to, be, to have the courage to make suggestions which may be stupid, which may be laughed at, but for you to make it, because only then will we achieve the civil society that we seek. My next lecture will be a final, my final one, thank goodness and I can go back to watching movies on long flights. It will be on the most amorphous and the most challenging topic on which I have no clue at this moment what I'm going to say. It's on society and identity, and it'll be on April the 9th. And I think society and identity probably is the most important issue we face as a society and as a people going forward. I have learned in the course of four lectures so far how much I do not know through this journey. And finally, I hope to share some of that ignorance with you in the final lecture. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much, Kwon Ping. Uh, I am greatly admiring that Kwon Ping chose two very difficult and intractable issues to deal with today, retirement adequacy as well as fertility, both uh, issues and challenges that the government has been trying to deal with time and time again. Indeed, us as a society have been trying to deal with time and again. Uh, I'm sure, ju judging by the size of this crowd compared just to the last lecture, uh, that there are many views and uh, we are certainly open to hear your comments uh, to Kwon lecture, but also other suggestions that you may have on how we might improve retirement adequacy as well as fertility. So maybe I'll just start by uh, opening the floor up uh, since we have about 45 minutes. Uh, and if I could invite you when you ask your question to say your name and uh, where you come from, just to enable us to contextualize your question a little bit. So let me just pause here and see if there are any uh, takers to jump to the microphones and get us going. Okay, one there. Hi, uh, I'm YC, an NUS student in geography. Uh, you talk about the interesting trend of Western countries reversing their TFR. And one of the things that I read is that uh, the sequence of how things happen between couples actually change. For example, couples now live together, have kids, then get married in Western countries. And it's pretty common. 
So do you think that that kind of uh, sequence change would happen in Singapore? And if so, what are the institutional barriers that prevent this from happening? For, I refer to like uh, HDB ownership because uh, you have to get married before you can own, own a place in Singapore. Whereas in many other countries, it's actually quite common for couples to just rent a place and have kids. Your question is that in Western countries, <clears throat> they're actually producing children without necessarily the institutional framework of marriage. And what impact that would have on us here if, that, if it goes that way, you mean? Well, I think I sort of referred to that in my last remarks about alternative family norms. Um, right now, I don't think we see that trend in Singapore or in East Asia as a whole that people shun marriage and would like to just live together and produce children. I think we still, we're seeing the trend, of course, more than, much more than before of unmarried people living together but not necessarily having children. And most of the time when they decide to have children, uh, they'll get married. But I think I referred to it by saying that if such alternative family norms do arise in Singapore, I think it behooves us to recognize these trends, not necessarily to encourage them, but not to actively discourage them. If that becomes the way of the world, that more and more people want to live together and have very happy lives together, and will have civil unions, for example, without the institution or the religious sacrament of marriage, personally, I would, I would think that the state should recognize that so in, in, in so doing, we would have more children also. My only disquiet about people living together who are not married is that this often is at the disadvantage to the female partner and they don't recognize this early on in life, but later on it can really badly affect them. So I'm more not so much into marriage as a religious thing, but I think the institution of at least a civil union where rights are accorded to people in a marriage, I think that's actually quite important for the protection of both parties in, in a union. Thank you. There was another hand here, was there? Yeah, Lam Kyung, please. Thanks, Kwantin, uh, for the great talk. Uh, my name is Lam Kyung, I'm from the LKY School. Um, uh, Couple of comments. I, I really like your ideas. Um, I think, if, to me, the distinguishing feature of them are two. The first is with regard to retirement adequacy. It's basically the state taking on a role, give a guarantee that no matter what happens in a well-designed system that is fiscally sustainable, Singaporeans will be guaranteed a decent retirement right at the bottom. I think that's a wonderful guarantee that right now is missing from the various schemes. And the second thing I like about your comments with regard to, to regenerating a, a, a decent birth rate, replacement rate, is that the state too has a role in providing that infrastructure, right? Providing employment conditions, providing the facilities. So the state as role of infrastructure provider, the state as role of guarantor of a certain minimum quality in life to allay citizens' anxiety is at the heart of your talk, and I think that's very important for us to take cognizance of. I would just like to comment that with respect to anxiety that citizens feel about growing old, which is your first point, 
which is inexorably brought about by the rate at which we are aging. Nowhere else in the world is this going to happen, faster than here, and with as many problems in the coming decades by corollary here. And this is really the problem of long-term medical care. I think that is missing from the equation. Um, Medifund, MediShield, Medi, MediShield Lie, uh, does very well for universal guarantee of hospitalization, but for the increasingly aged people who will find themselves in need of full-time care in the decades to come, the legions of people from all walks of life and all kinds of families, we are missing both the guarantee and the infrastructure that you're talking about. Right? The guarantee is that no matter what my family station, my means in life, if I need to look after my aged parents or if I need to be looked after, there will be a top-up at some point for me. The infrastructure includes the fact that right now we have no national infrastructure for elderly care. Includes the whole mass of residential-based community healthcare centres because you can't age that way, in you can't be looked after that way in hospitals and the supplementary services in the home. And this, I think, is going to be a financial burden bigger than MediShield Lie, and as big as the financial burdens that, that you mentioned, but is equally necessary. Thanks very much. So the comment just is on the missing piece, which is healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just like to comment that I think um, re regarding um, retirement adequacy, I actually, where I feel the, the, what is unfortunate is that, in fact, the government is creating a lot of the measures that add up to an overall retirement adequacy, but they're in different schemes, in different ways that are not that easy for a common layman to understand. The CPF itself is already quite complex. Then you've got another silver support scheme coming in. Obviously, we've got a very well-meaning government that intends fully and is fully committed to, to ensuring retirement adequacy. But it's not all brought in under one umbrella, and it's not under one unified, integrated platform, such as a CPF, where everything that goes, goes to help people would be put in under the scheme of the CPF. Because that was, as I mentioned, the initial very risky, bold, audacious promise of the PAP when it first came to power, making that kind of bold promise that everyone need not ever fear that they wouldn't have a house, and they would never fear that if they retired, they would not have money to survive. I mean, that's a huge promise for a young government to give. But that really rallied people. And I think we need, in the next 50 years, to have something very simple, very understandable, which the government should not be afraid of. We will find the way to resolve retirement adequacy. So make a bold promise, rather than a lot of different schemes, which may all add up to being very good, but you, you tend to they're all very technocratic, done by bureaucrats, which they all understand it because they live in that milieu. But unless you are there and you're just, especially a lower income person, you don't really understand all of these schemes and that adds to anxiety. So the anxiety may actually not be because of uh, missing care, the care might actually be there. It's just that uh, it's difficult for us to understand it because it's spread over so many schemes. So by putting it under one umbrella, you recapture the, centr the central and the central provident fund. That would be quite an interesting way to go about it. There was a question. Yes, please. Would you just make your way to the microphone? Thank you. 
My name is Francis Pabri. I'm a white-haired retiree. I, I, I want to raise this issue about the, the support systems that you say, which is the expensive support system that has seemed to work for Sweden and France, where you know birth rates have bottomed out and now are climbing again. But I want to give the example of America, because America doesn't have as wide or as extensive support schemes. And yet, as you mentioned, the birth rate the, the replace is around 2.1, which is you know, hovering around the replacement rate. Now, why I ask this question is because in Singapore, it's not the support sometimes that is the problem. As you all know, Singapore, we're a small place. And being in a small place, grandparents are always very close. And a lot of my friends, you know, we ask them, oh, I can't do this. I've got to take my grandkids to piano lessons and so on. So there is one support system that most of my friends in America do not have because I have a classmate who used to, and uh, they have two children. Both uh, uh, parents work, you know, quite far from, from home, and then they have their child help in the mornings and all, and they brought up two children, two wonderful children. In Singapore, we have support. Grandparents is one big support. Many people, I'm sure many of you here, look after grandchildren as well. So that's one thing that the Americans do not have. The second thing that we have is domestic help. So really, if you think about support, for, not for everybody, but for a large part of the population, there is support. It's not that the support is missing, then we need to supplement with childcare, uh, preschool, etc. Now, what seems to be missing, I talked to some young people, and they say it's that Raising children in Singapore is just too expensive. That they have to take, they have to bear 18 years of expenses, which they feel that you know it uh, affects their own lifestyle. So they'd rather not have children and enjoy and, and and you know many of them raise dogs instead of children, as you know, right? <laughs> Prefer dogs to children. So what is it about Singapore that you know we have the support and yet we don't have the children? I don't know either. I mean, I, I, did, I did mention um, that there was another interesting fact. I think people are all guessing, by the way. But Japan has also experienced, uh, for the last five or six years, a, a spike, an increase in their, in their uh, TFR. And demographers are wondering whether this has anything to do with the fact that overall, the number of working hours in Japan over the last 10 years or so have actually declined. They still, have, they still work long hours but it has declined. The fact that we have, uh, according to my research assistant, the longest working hours of any people in the world, that might have something to do with it. They just have no time to make babies. But yet we all seem to have done it during our time, so maybe we just work less hard than they're working today. I think these are all stabs in the dark, but I think we need to probably discuss these, this in a much more um, holistic manner as to why the TFR is not, not growing. There's some questions yeah, on this side. Lots more hands also. coming up. Yeah, so why don't we start with you, followed by Chris. Thanks. I'd like to contribute to this uh, debate between men about women's issues. I'm Corinna from AWARE. Uh, in relation to Francis's uh, comments, um, you see, support from a domestic worker is quite different from uh, what a child needs, when, especially when a child is like say seven and going to school, we have seen many moms now, working moms giving up their work when their child goes to school and when the child is not doing so well because the domestic worker, the grandparent, cannot 
take over the tuition and the, you know, sort of taking care of the child's education, etc. So part of it is probably the education system as well. Um, so I think in the Scandinavian countries, it's not just the childcare, but it's also the whole education system. So actually, a lot of things have to be changed. Um, one a point that, and many of the ideas that you have raised, Mr. Ho, and thank you for actually bringing these up because we have, at AWARE, said so many times to government, promote gender equality, uh, baby bonuses, not working, etc. and Scandinavian countries look at their policies, and they have done all these study trips. So it's not that they are not aware of them, but they have rejected them for several reasons. Um, I find that the, although the government says fertility is one of these issues that keep us awake at night, there still isn't that priority that's given because they have other priorities. For example, they have the tax benefits that they give to um, working mothers. I'm not sure how much that is that they are losing. Uh, so that's quite a lot of money that they are not collecting. Um, but all these schemes are actually helping richer people. So there is, a, yes, they want more babies, but they want more babies from certain types of families. They have still got the HOPE scheme, which is the Home Ownership uh, Plus Education Scheme, where they pay lower income people uh, who do not have, I think, beyond Sec 4 education, up to $100,000 to get their flats so long as they do not give birth to more than two babies. So there are many conflicting priorities. It is not just about we want more babies. No, we only want babies from certain types. We want to encourage certain types of families to have babies. If we were really single-minded about just having babies, we could do it. I agree, we could, we could definitely do it. But be because there are other priorities, so it is, this is a problem. Thank you. Uh, Chris, you had a... Yeah. Uh, Chris from the IPS, uh, and thank you for the, uh, for the speech. Um, I had a, um, a question, and maybe a posit that the, um, the Seko Kao, or your bearded ram, uh, is in fact um, the fact that uh, Singapore uh, saves too much, both collectively as a nation, as well as um, individually. Um, you know, and you mentioned the, your retirement funding ratio. And you know, we work really hard, we save for our futures, we have to save for you know, children's expenses and all. Um, and, and we do this during our peak reproductive years. You know, and, and the question then becomes, you know, are we saving too much, both, as I said, um, nationally as well as, uh, as, as, as workers? So, Kwon-Ping, want to respond to both of those? I think it's an, um, it's an interesting question, particularly at the national level, and I think it's fully understandable um, in terms of our psyche regarding a welfare state. I think we in Singapore have been particularly averse to it because we have seen the excesses of what welfare, welfareism can do in, in terms of the the enormous problems and the legacies that it poses on future generations in the West. And so we've been very wary of that from the very beginning when the political leadership set up the CPF as being a self-funding model. 
So we've always had that aversion to welfareism. We've also been, as a nation, extremely vulnerable and therefore the necessity to build up the reserves. I think these are all very understandable and absolutely necessary for the first 50 years of Singapore's uh, history. I think the debate does have to start now. In fact, it is starting now with this present debate. The issue of how much is enough conceptually, not going to absolute numbers, but how much is enough of reserves accumulation before you can start to spend the income from it. That started in 2008 and now it's actually becoming a public issue. I think it's a very healthy discussion. The issue also about aversion to welfareism and the role of the state. Um, that's always been a, a big issue because state-funded welfare has always been seen as being the slippery slope. And I think it's healthy that this discussion start now. Because if we start, if anything at all, we've gone the other way, as you've said, of saving too much. The lessons we can all glean from negative experiences in the West, we can learn from. So that as we spend more now, which I think we should, we do not need to go the whole hog and we can avoid the mistakes that have plagued quite a number of countries in the West, which they're regretting. I'm just curious how the audience feels about a couple of the ideas that Kwon Ping raised in his lecture. So I'm just going to do a poll. Uh, one of the ideas was around using a fixed percentage of NIR, right, to fund the CPF life scheme. So this guaranteed uh, supplemental funding for retirement. Can I just see a show of hands, yes or no? Do you support the idea of using a fixed percentage? This is not scientific and we're not going to take photographs, you know, this is... It's just, just to get a sense of how people feel about the idea. So using a fixed percentage of the net investment uh, return, net, net income, net investment returns from uh, the reserves to fund the CPF plus uh, idea that Kwon uh, Ping talked about. Who would say yes, it's acceptable? Okay. okay, hands down, who would say no? Or not so sure, don't, hmm. Okay, so majority think it's a, a good feasible idea we might pursue. The other so is it a done deal now? Can we, this, is, this, is, uh, this is parliament, right? Part of so the debate, part of the debate. Huh? And then the other idea I was curious to take a poll on. Um, in his lecture, Kwon Ping talked about how we are a little bit nervous about how guaranteeing supplemental funding will erode the work ethic, right? Uh, it's one of these sacred cows that, that we don't question too much if we can help it, which is, you know, if I give you money, then you will have a sense of entitlement or it will... Uh, the disincentivize uh, work, uh, which Kwon Ping said maybe not because it's deferred, right? So I'm just curious uh, how many people here would say, uh, yes, it will not erode the work ethic. It, in other words, it's okay. It's a good idea to have this guaranteed supplemental funding. It will not have an impact on work ethic. Who says yes, it, it'll be okay? Okay, hands down. Who says no, it will have a negative impact on work ethic? Okay. So your ideas look like they might have a lease of life beyond this room, you know, so... Well, what you didn't say, because they can't see themselves, is that the majority didn't raise their hands at all. <laughs> no, there are quite a number of hands. Okay, interesting. Um, any further questions or comments? Let me just... Uh, yes, please, Casey. I'd like to... I'm <coughs> Casey Chu, uh, chairman of the substation. Last time wrongly... Uh, described as a theater company. It's not a theater company. It's an art center. Um, 
So I have a question that is sparked by one of the issues you raised in terms of um, the sustainability of retirement um, income. And one of these ideas which you didn't particularly, you mentioned it was this reverse mortgage. And my question is, um, uh, with the majority of uh, property being HDB uh, owned and, and presumably then the reverse mortgage will be on HDB properties, um, there is a issue of the 99 year lease. And so, uh, you know, there's 50 years left. And as time goes on, very swiftly, there'll be 30 years left. And then there'll be 20 years left. And frankly, who's going to be interested in buying a property that's only 20 years left without knowing what's going to happen when the 99 years lease is out? So my sense is that why doesn't the uh, government then make a determination now to say once and for all what's going to happen to all 99-year-lease properties. That will give an enormous st uh, uh, stability to the, this whole question and might add to the value of reverse mortgages. So my question is, is this a possible thing? Okay. I, I think I would agree with you about the uncertainty part. Um, the I mean, I'm not an expert at this. Every time I become an expert after a lecture, and it gives me about you know, a few hours and I become a quick expert already. Um, but the little research I, I've seen is that, for some reason, reverse mortgages back to HDB has not been popular. And I can only surmise that either people don't know enough about it or somehow they feel the, they need the retirement security or perhaps, as you've suggested, Singaporeans are a lot more shrewd than we give them credit for. Probably a lot of people are saying, why would I want to sell back to the state now? Because if I held on to it and, and when the lease comes due, they might introduce something that will be really beneficial to me and my children, they may allow me to make, you know, it, it could be really beneficial. So why would you want to do a reverse mortgage now? Because the certitude of what's going to happen afterwards is not there. So I would agree that that might well be a reason, I'm just speculating that might be a reason why there's a reluctance for people to, to monetize their homes. Um, and it's a different topic altogether but to the extent that we're talking about big issues for the next 50 years, I do think it's probably not a bad idea as we're getting closer now to the early years of the HDB becoming, the leases are coming due. It, prob it probably is worthwhile, not for government again to come out with a policy, but for a big discussion with Singaporeans about what, sh what are the possible options for um, uh, for for uh, extending leases of HTB, that that is a topic that I think um, the director of uh, IPS, uh, Janadas, should make sure, and the the other directors of the IPS Northern Fellowship should note that the next SR Northern Fellow should certainly address this issue. I like how he's shooting arrows uh, forward, um, but I think, as I understand it, based on on where we are now. For some of the oldest flats, uh, the government has a selective on-block redevelopment scheme where people, uh, I think, trade off their old flat for a brand new one uh, and then the lease starts again. So that I don't think it's amounted to a policy across the board, but certainly it's a, already a model for very old flats. So that's something there already. So maybe some of these people are holding out now instead of a reverse mortgage. Yes, please.
After Francis, it has to come quite a way down. Uh, Elizabeth Naya, working health psychologist. Uh, a couple of comments and perhaps uh, a question, a provocative question, I think. First, on the basis of what you, was, you have said in your talk, Mr. Ho, as well as um, in, your, in your reply, there is an implication that, that I hear that perhaps there is already sufficient provision and it's a communication inadequacy. And, and maybe that's the issue that needs to be addressed by the powers that be. That's one point. The second point is uh, with regard to, to young people who feel they cannot afford to have children because of the demands in the system. And looking at the comment about the education system and I, I would I would hazard a guess that quite a bit has to, has to do with our own expectations as parents of what we want to see our children achieving in school. And, we are, and that anxiety comes from there. And if we could moderate our expectations to wanting our children to love learning and not just get the grades, I think a lot of the anxiety will go away. That's the second point. The third point is you need time and leisure uh, to make babies. And we work long hours. I think the one way around it is apart from individuals deciding they will work a certain number of hours and take time off for the rest of their life uh, in their most productive years, one way that would work in the Singapore system is legislation where employers would be penalized if their employees stay beyond a certain number of hours. Everyone likes that idea. Let's see some employers try it. Yeah, please, Kwon an employer himself, so. Well, I would say um, there's absolutely no assurance that if you, if they are forced to leave their workplace that they're necessarily going to go home and make babies. You may find that the pubs of Singapore will be very full. Um, on, the, on, this, on the serious side, I think it's, this problem is a whole of society problem, it's a whole of government sort of problem. The little I know, again I'm just barely scratching the surface of it, the little I know though is that the primary reason that people were not having children in the West, I'm beginning to have it now, is because of the support system, parental leave and everything else, the whole ecosystem for early years of child rearing. Because you generally don't make a decision to not have a child because you happen to be against the gifted education program or you're against the schooling system. Those are all very intellectual. My understanding is that the natural desire to have children is very strong among young people, but it's the immediate pressures within the first few years that if they're not sufficiently relieved and very much with gender equality and with work-life balance. If those two, to me, the little again I've, I've seen is that if any society can put into reality and put into concrete measures these two very glib terms, work-life balance, gender equality, they slip from our tongue so easily but to realize them and to actualize them is actually not that easy in a society. It's not just the government's role, it's 
attitudes between couples themselves and so on. When you have a more holistic achievement of those two goals, then it seems that the natural desire to, to have children uh, come up. As for having to have more time to have children, um, when uh, my, my son got married and everything, my wife was telling me, give him more free time, give him more holidays. So we are going to be grandparents. So all those many uh, extra leave days that you had has come back to benefit us. On the, on the other earlier question that you raised, whether it is a purely perceptual problem or not, whether we have retirement adequacy or not, I would say that's part of the issue. The other part of the issue is we just don't know. So now there's a lot of concern that, the, that we have retirement inadequacy because the CPF is being tweaked all the time. The silver support scheme comes in with an additional $200 over a month. But there's no, and there's a big commitment by government but again, it's not just whether these are piecemeal, it's also there is no one single overwhelming commitment that, for example, uh, whatever is the gap required, whatever is the gap that arises from what is determined periodically by a competent authority to be a minimum monthly spending for a dignified and basic retirement uh, spend, between the gap between that amount and what you yourself have in your pocket, we will somehow get to you. Through a multitude of means, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's going to be just injected into your, your uh, CPF account. The government has done a number of things recently. They've raised by 1% the employer's contribution, they've tweaked it here, they've tweaked it there. So all these tweaks can be done, but I'm suggesting that two things be done. One of it is that it be done within a unified platform, so that it's easy to understand, and secondly, is that we do have a system where at least there's one authority, a commission or a panel that states, and this may be controversial, people may not accept it, but it does state that right now for the next three years, we think $1,000 a month is the minimum required. 10 years from now, maybe 1,500 or whatever in terms of cash requirement. And whatever is necessary to make up that difference, somehow through different means within the CPF, the state will, will provide that. That is re returning to the social contract that the CPF promised to Singaporeans 50 years ago. Yeah, China does. Now I know I'm really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make two points. Um, my name is Janet Das. Um, first point um, about babies. Um, I agree with you um, that the primary problem is probably men, not women. Um, I don't know whether working hours has got anything to do with it, but there is some scientific evidence to show that sperm counts do come down with stress. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, there is, actually. Uh, I'm not joking. Um, I don't know what effect they have on eggs, um, but, um, but there is evidence. Um, but I don't know whether that's, that's anything to do with uh, the birth rate. Um, nor whether or not um, uh, Swedish or Scandinavian kinds of support systems contribute are, are, are necessary, I'm not so sure because you have similar levels of um, birth rates in America, for example, uh, without um, that whole paraphernalia that you find in Scandinavian countries. But what I do know, this is actually undeniable, right? Um, there is actually a positive correlation between female participation in the workforce and higher fertility rates in developed countries is completely counterintuitive because you would think that the lower the female participation, 
in the workforce, the higher the birth rate would be. It's actually the opposite. Uh, you go into a comparison of all the OECD countries, and this has been a statistic that has been around for about 15 years or so. Um, higher female participation in Scandinavian countries, higher the birth rate. Lower uh, participation, lower birth rate. And if you look at the countries, you'll understand why. Um, the countries with lowest uh, uh, fertility rates in Europe are Catholic, conservative. Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland. They're all much lower fertility rates. Uh, then um, the, the northern European countries uh, with more liberal social structures. And it actually comes down to the relationship between men and women. It's, it's that. I mean, even in Asia, you look at the countries that are actually having trouble, they're all societies where male patriarchy is still very strong. So I actually think that is probably a bigger contributory factor to low fertility rates than anything else. I mean, I, but as you say, it's, you know, we are all sort of guessing in the dark. Yeah, but you're, yeah. The, um, but that's, that's a correlation that exists, and it's existed for uh, well, a very long time. You can go and check the statistics. I mean, I don't have, the, I don't, there are no figures for East Asia, but OECD countries, uh, I think the only OECD country in Asia is, is Japan, right? Um, yeah, um, yeah, no, sorry, Japan is not part of the OECD. Yeah. <laughs> huh? But anyway, you look at it, it's, it's actually, it's very, it's very stark. Um, so I, I actually do think that it's, it's certainly in Singapore, um, we have to do research on how um, the relationship between the sexes um, determines um, uh, family structures. Um, I, I don't think we know enough, but I think your, 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 your suggestion that it is a factor is correct. The other thing on CPF, I just one correction. CPF was not established by the PAP government. It was established by the British in, I can't remember which year, 55, 56? Yeah. Um, and when the British accept, uh, established it, um, it was with the understanding that it would only last for a short time. And that we are going to turn into, I don't know what they would call it, some kind of insurance, right? So it was the PAP government that said, no, we'll keep CPF, right? Um, and CPF, from a very early stage, um, I can't remember when, 1968 or so, we allowed CPF for housing. So from a very early stage, CPF and housing, well, retirement housing became linked. Now, the question which you raised was a very important question, how much of your reserves should we devote to social expenditure? Actually, we have already made that decision, as you point out, as you suggested, um, in very significant ways. You know. For the, most of the past seven out of the past 10 years, if you took out NIR, that's the income that you get from the reserves, the budget, the primary budget would have been in deficit. The operating budget would have been in deficit. The only reason we have been able to fund things like the PGP package, the silver support, whatever, money is fungible, I mean, you really don't know where the money comes from, but, if you take out all these programs and you just look at the primary budget, um, expenditure, not, not development budget, just expenditure plus revenue, that balances more or less. All the other stuff that we do, the PGP and so on, 
we would have been in very serious trouble if we did not use NRR. We actually already are tapping NRR. Tapping NRR for PGP, we're tapping it for obviously the silver support, um, MediShield, Life, whatever premiums that, uh, premium supports that you're doing, it all comes from NRR. So really the question then is, how much of NRR do you want to spend? So we already made one huge move in 2008 or 2009 when we moved from NII, that's just interest income, to NIR. And then now we're making another big move to include the MASIC, which would add another 1% of GDP. So you can work out the sums. I mean, so any, the contribution from NIR will go from 9 billion to whatever, 13 billion or whatever it is, right? But it's quite a large sum of money. So actually the question that you ask is not as though we are not doing it. The question then is how much more do you want to do? Yeah. And I think the other point he was making too is actually there needs to be some kind of conversation nationally around actually who is the NIR, who are the reserves for and how much of it should be for the future generations versus the present. Yeah, I think we need this debate very much because you, you know very well as all of the rest of us, it used to be during our younger days for anyone to suggest that drawing upon NIR, you would be told to get out of the room, you're, you know, you're a wet, you're a liberal, you want to, you basically uh, spend thrift, you want to spend all this hard-earned money that the generations have built up and you're just basically like an opposition party that just want to spend. The PAP itself has started doing it since 2008 and I think it's, the NIR has been used to, to finance some extremely good programs. All I'm saying is that we are ready right now in the middle of of a much needed discussion among more people than just the people who originally started. You know, when the amendment was made in 2008, I don't think there was a big lot of discussion about the whole, the whole issue of how much is enough for reserves, what should it be used for, and so on. And this debate is something that government is actually drawing upon this it's relatively top-down. Government is very responsible. Government is looking at all the needs of the people. They draw upon the NIR up to 50% and they're spending it. I'm saying that people themselves should have a discussion as to what is enough, how much should be used, and that would be, that would be in my view, very healthy. So I'm not in any disagreement about what's happening. I think it's very healthy, but it's not been enough part of the daily discussion of people. Okay, we've got about five minutes more and a couple more questions. I think there's a hand waiting up there. Betrays my eyesight that I couldn't see it. Please. Yeah. And then you next. Okay, I'm a bit short for this. <laughs> Hi, good evening. Uh, I'm Hong Ling. I'm a social worker. I work in a family service centre. So I, I tend to work with populations who are vulnerable. Thank you. I'm, I'm way too short for that. Sorry. Um, and I think I really like your ideas about, about CPF, about social spending. I think to me as an individual, not as a social worker, as an individual in a middle class setting, it's, it's a very attractive idea. It's very progressive. Uh, but, but then I think about my clients and technically it's supposed to be very easy to get CPF if you work. Um, uh, they've been running all these ads on TV about, you know, if you well, I think $50 a month, you should be paid CPF, but the, the reality is that most low-income workers will experience at some point or another in one job or another not being paid CPF, and it's a norm. And no, I don't think there's any policing of that in, in their workplace, and I would not expect 
my clients who are caught in daily grind to go and pursue what is actually their rights. Because um, there are studies that show that if you're in chronic poverty, poverty, it does affect your mentality. You become very short-term, and I don't think we can blame them for not thinking long-term, A, protect your rights and all that. It's not fair to say that to them. So for workers like these who are not getting CPF, and therefore, no matter how good our benefits and CPF are, um, they will lose out. I, I'm just curious to, to, to know what your thoughts about uh, these group of low-income earners. Yeah, thank I'll you. Just take the other question first as well, if I could. So thanks for the talk. Uh, I'm Kwek Xiong Bing. Um, I'm an estate agent. Uh, just now I noted a few points that you raised out. First is that um, the cost of retirement is actually higher than that of the income earned in previous year. I think this has to do with the uh, ever-rising cost of living uh, for uh, market economy. And that the government is actually chasing uh, in requirement, sorry, retirement adequacy, like chasing an ever faster runner. Uh, runner. So for your old age retirement adequacy uh, is a cost of living issue. And then later you raise out for the DFR to go up, we should uh, embrace changing social norms and also have better government policies such as uh, provision of high quality at, uh, affordable childcare centres. Well, given that all these cost of living issues and uh, social norms are all central, uh, part of the provision by government policies, right? Should it be a point that the government should nationalize or uh, take back certain sectors from private sector so that the cost of living can be tempered down? Because if you can go, to, you can do a, a lot of uh, complex adjustments with CPF. Uh, policies, but the central issue of cost of living will never be addressed, and this will keep on escalating. Your question is whether government should nationalize some services in order to keep the costs down. Yes, sir. For example, like uh, SMRTs, uh, SBS, public transport system, that are the essential critical pro uh, operators. Um, if I if I could just answer that, I would say. Yes, but to a very limited extent. Um, I think we need to recognize that the nationalization of too many services can also result in a lot, in a high level of inefficiencies. Um, and I think from a purely economic argument, one should quite clearly look at what are the natural monopolies that already exist that are, that are going to be natural monopolies, in which case it's probably better for a natural monopoly to be owned by the government and for the government to subsidize that. I think there's a growing recognition that perhaps in the, you know, there was a period of time when we set up an inter-ministerial, a ministerial um, competitiveness or committee to try to, to denationalize quite a number of um, previous state enterprises. We might have gone a little bit too far in some of these natural monopolies. So I would tend to agree with you that, and I think government is doing it right now, government is really looking at the transportation model, where there's a huge amount of infrastructural investments required, whether in fact the state should renationalize it. To the extent that the, the SMRT, all the, um, the heavy investments are already funded by the state, it's only the rolling stock that is actually owned by SMRT. Um, to that extent, and to the extent that SMRT itself is a largely government-owned entity, we, the, it is already a nationalized entity. The problem there is because the SMRT has been told it has to play within the rules of the marketplace and it has to make profits and so on, 
So perhaps therein is the problem that expenses go up too high. So yes, I would agree that certain, certain services perhaps should be reconsidered, but it should be on a very selective basis. And the other question was on? Uh, vulnerable groups, how and Who don't and have CPF. CPF at all, yeah. you mean? I think if we, one of the things that I, that I think you pointed out very correctly is that the lower income you are, the more, un, the more unlikely you're going to be aware of all the plethora of schemes out there that actually can help you. you to have to apply for this and to apply for that and to even know all these schemes exist, I think is quite a hindrance. And that's why I think we have an opportunity to just keep the CPF as, a, as the simple system by which government supplements are used rather than having separate separate schemes coming in and furthermore we do have an opportunity to relook at the whole thing and to ask ourselves whether people who are marginal at the income level whether they're very low income earning people or they are um, sp sporadically unemployed and you know part-time workers or their caregivers at home there's a whole segment of people who are left out of the CPF safety net. And yet it's not as if they are lazy people who don't want to work and you know the typical story about, about people who are not working constantly. We need to look at these, this whole category of people and perhaps there can be a means by which with CPF plus and so on, these people can be automatically given a CPF account so that they have it and they are supplemented by some degree of CPF injection. So that if you're a working mother, I mean, if you're a home carer, or you are an odd job laborer, you still have some basic CPF money rather than zero at all. And that would then allow the CPF to be a fundamental safety net. I think that's about, okay, final question, sorry. So I'm uh, Li Ziyang, I'm on the IPS uh, academic panel. Um, let, me, let me first of all help Huan uh, Ping in terms of uh, um, targeting some questions for your successor in this role. I was, I was just contrasting the approach that uh, you've taken between um, retirement adequacy and uh, lower fertility. Because on the lower fertility side, it's very clear that the measures have an intended uh, behavioral change you know, on the part of the uh, couples in the fertile uh, ages. It's not clear to me. And that's why I think no, more work needs to be done on the retirement adequacy question, because it's not clear to me what's expected then of the people in that, in that uh, retirement age. And, and being someone who has just recently uh, entered <laughs> that age, if, if for 20 years I'm going to live after retirement and in future I'm going to live 30 years, then I don't think I just want to be looked after. I think I want to have choices. And I think therefore what 10% of the population used to do may be less important, but in future if 30% of the population, I think the choices that they make are going to be quite important. So I think more work needs to be done on life after retirement and maybe what does retirement actually signify? And I think the other point that Yulam Kyung raised was very important because out of this 20 years or 30 years, the years in which you actually are unable because of medical reasons to be productive, 
If we can minimize that, or if we can cater for that, I think it makes a big difference again. I, I would agree with you um, completely. But the only point I would like to make here, which I made in lecture, is that I think as we go into the next 50 years and people's life expectancy will increase a lot more, um, you will find that the higher income and better educated portions of the population will clearly have a second career. And therefore, retirement adequacy may not be that big a problem in terms of actual funding because many of us will go on to have second careers and be productive. However, I pointed out that there are pro probably an entire segment of really lower educated, lower income people. Retirement is something that they would like to have because post-retirement employment may not be necessarily that enjoyable and it's something they may do only if they have to maintain, uh, maintain a second career job because they have no retirement uh, adequacy. So perhaps the problem is not as large as we think from a financial point of view, but my main point remains that for those people for whom retirement adequacy is an anxious problem, as their retirement years go longer and longer, and what they earn in their lifetime becomes less and less available to fund it, I think their government needs to give an unequivocal promise that we will take care of you. But it may not be that big a financial commitment because the middle class and, and professionals will clearly, well, middle class professionals today are not even a, a retirement problem anyway because most people do not even need their CPF to fund their retirement. So generally speaking, I think we're always talking about lower income people. And for lower income people, it may not be that easy when you live to be 95 for you to still work until 78 or 80 years old. You still may want to retire at 65. Okay, on that note, I think that's all we have time for. Uh, I think you'll agree with me that we've had a very broad-ranging discussion, not just about babies and old people, but we talked about cost of living and reserves and nationalization of industries, education, gender equality, men being the problem. Uh, I think that deserves a round of applause uh, to Kwon Ping for so gamely tackling all these questions. And thank you very much uh, for being here tonight and for helping us end on time so that we have work-life balance and can go off and do all the things, young people, that we're supposed to be doing right now. <laughs> thank you very much for being here tonight. <laughs>